today as we are talking about the strength of women, the voice of women, feminism, the divine feminine, and how this has historically not intersected uh, with many places within the Christian tradition, and how today we are seeing a much needed and much greater intersection than ever before. And so I'm thrilled to be joined today by my friend Carla Ewart, who just flew in from the Twin Cities in the great state of Minnesota. Carla is a Minneapolis-based writer and speaker. She is the co-creator of She Is Called, which is a national conversation for women who lead. Carla also hosts the She Is Called podcast and the Holy Writ podcast and is a regular panelist on the Christian Feminist podcast. Carla, welcome to the Changing Faith podcast. Thanks, Michael. It's really good to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Now, a couple of months ago, um, you and I, we were all together at a, at a gathering mm-hmm. and had some conversation about vulnerability and spirituality, how we hear one another, how we speak to one another, um, and how women have often approached this within the framework of the Christian tradition, most specifically the framework of the church, and how you see this now changing Uh, and really moving toward a place of greater health, Mm -hmm. and how you specifically are working for and are part of leading that change. So first, tell us just a little bit about yourself, how you grew up, what your experience has been, and what led you to this important work. Sure. Um, So I grew up, my daddy's a pastor in the um, conservative evangelical tradition, non-denominational, planted a church out of the Jerry Falwell sort of independent um, church movement. Um, and he's pastored that church for the last 48 years. Um, so, and it's a very, uh, like I said, conservative church. So complementarian and complementarian, meaning that men are leaders, women are helpers. That whole structure was the way that I grew up. There are no women, even deacons, in my dad's church. Every leadership position is a male position. So um, that's the way I grew up. Um, goodness, as I started to. As I got older and started to realize that this wasn't working for me very well, I, I um, started to shift in a lot of ways in my faith. Mm-hmm. And one of the moments that's sort of a defining moment for me in thinking about how this started to shift was I was, at, I was in Bible college. And I went to Bible college, of course, not able to train for pastorate, but thinking, oh, I'll do missions or something that's sort of appropriate for women, right? Children's director. Right, children's director. I really didn't want to do that. I really didn't. <laughs> um, I love children, but I, that was not a thing I wanted to do. I um, So I thought maybe missions would be my avenue. Um, but I remember sitting in a, a one of our evangelical or like our evangelism classes, and we had to do a spiritual giftedness test. And we did that test, and I came out gifted as a pastor. And, mm. and I remember our professor getting up after we did that test and we got our results. And he said, now, if you're a woman and you're gifted as a shepherd or a pastor, don't despair. You can't do that. But there are lots of ways you can use that gift. (laughs) And he started talking about different things. But I remember, like, having this sense of, like, embarrassment that when I saw my results, like, I identified with that. That felt true to me, that I was gifted as a shepherd and a pastor. And then to have him get up and say... Oh, also, you can't actually do that if you're a woman and that's your giftedness. There are other things you can do with that giftedness. Um, so I remember that hitting me really hard. And I finally, when I, I went to four years of Bible college, I graduated um, and I decided I just couldn't keep doing the thing I had been doing. Um, so I went and got a master's degree in English. I just moved as far away from the church as I possibly could. Yes. I stopped going to church. I felt like my way of being, my sort of presence actually wasn't that welcomed. The questions that I had weren't welcomed. And so I just stopped attending. And I started um, thinking about life through a literary lens mm-hmm. rather than a biblical lens. Um, and that felt super refreshing because I got to think about my voice as a woman was actually quite welcomed there. And the things that I wanted to understand and study, um, I got to do. So Yeah. Yeah, so that's sort of background on. And so the spiritual gifts, was it like a spiritual gifts inventory? What was it? Okay. And so you have this identity that's hardwired within you, Mm -hmm. and you're being told by a, was it a seminary college professor? It was a Bible college professor. Okay. Yep. You can't do that. Yeah. Is this for you then... Is this a story that, that's commonplace, or is this just your story? Oh, I think it's super commonplace. Um, and I, I think, like, I knew that before I even took that test. I knew that it wasn't allowed to me. The thing that felt sort of internal to me, um, whatever that shepherding, speaking, that whole pastoral role, watching my dad do it, 
knowing it was in my world, a male role, but also feeling a lot of resonance with it and just yeah. sort of natural, like, oh, that thing makes sense. I get how that happens in the world. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and then, so when I, I think the moment that surprised me was actually getting my results and having it confirmed that the thing that I felt internally was somehow reflected to me externally, but yeah. then have it immediately offset by this professor voice saying, oh, but you can't do that. You know what I mean? Like, So what was the professor's, like, what, what was his exhortation to you then? Like, you can go and do... Women's ministry, children's ministry, any of the things that have typically been designated sort of female leadership roles, which in a complementarian church is just, you can't exercise authority over men. You can't yes. speak to men, you can't do biblical interpretation to men like that that's a thing that's a violation of sort of an order a natural order right? so, so at the outset then you, you, we can use words like feminism feminist divine feminine and people can for some who might even be listening um that might be like oh my goodness where is this all going right but backing the whole thing up to think about like okay what what's our listeners next step which is what we talk about on the podcast a lot it begins for you or began for you and for many others of saying this is really this is how the spirit to use that language this is how the spirit has gifted me and I'm being told that just because of my gender yeah. and my gender identity I can't do this yes and so that's where this journey for you in many ways begins and so now um your work still working within the church. What, what brought you back to? Well, so, and I use the church and yeah. what's some well, of the I journey think, there. I have to do a bit of a caveat, and I yeah. think it'll come back up as we keep talking. But when I started my master's degree in English, I thought I don't want to do gender studies. I want to do literature, and mm -hmm. I want to not write from a feminist perspective. I want to write as a woman who writes well, and have that be my feminist act. Yeah, you know what I yeah. mean. Yeah. And then as I started studying, I was in middle, I was in early modern literature, which is like Shakespeare, Spencer, Milton kind of era. Mm -hmm. And I started to realize how much of that was gendered and how much of it was, how much of our interpretation of the Bible was actually based on these early modern writers. So Milton in, in particular. Yeah. And I, I started to see, um, I did a whole thesis on the separation of the woman from her own internal voice how in a hierarchical system which puts the male somehow between the female and god mm -hmm. a woman never gets to hear her own internal voice she's always supposed to hear god or have a divine connection she's yeah. always supposed to hear through the male what she's supposed to do hmm. as the male being the head does that make sense yeah so that was reflected in all the literature i was working in and i just couldn't not mess with it like i just couldn't not because it was so an example of the thing that was happening in me where i had an internal voice saying one thing and the male external voice were telling me another thing. Right. And I wasn't sure what to do, what to listen to. Right. Um, so I spent my whole thesis literally pulling apart the idea that a woman should be separated from her own internal, what I now call like howl of passion. Yeah. By, you know, by a male voice telling her what she ought to do instead. Right. And the, the amount of existential, what I call disappointment, that is involved in that act of separation. Yeah. So, so like that, doing all that work in a non, like, faith-based structure, <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean? doing all that sort of cognitive work led me to understand how much, how much it mattered that I listened to my own internal voice. So I was at a church for a long time. Mm -hmm. um, I moved to Minnesota finally and stumbled into Solomon's Porch, which is where I attend now. And yep. it is Doug Paget's church. And it is a very different kind of place. <laughs> um, wherein it's a very strong male who, who centers that place, but he's very deeply invested in all the voices being heard. Mm -hmm. And that's evident in the way he talks. It's evident in everything that that community does. Every voice is welcome and heard. And I just felt so entirely different. Yeah. And um, within a couple of years, I was working with Doug on a lot of his national work mm -hmm. um, with what was the open network. And um, that was a fascinating move for me because I started to work with these congregations who were progressive in doctrine, right? Mm -hmm. Progressive enough to be egalitarian in doctrine. And yet as I was working with evangelical, progressive evangelical churches, I realized still most of these progressive churches don't have very many women in leadership. Right. 
So in the broader organization we were working in, I was able to work with mainstream or mainline churches, and there were lots of female clergy in those. Mm -hmm. And then I'd come back to the progressive evangelical bent, and there were almost none. Right. And they started to comment on that. Like the, the mainline female clergy, when they were around the open network people, which were progressive evangelicals, they were like, where are all the women? Mm. And I was like, oh, that's real. Yeah. <laughs> and so I started to get really curious about that. Yeah. So, yeah, that's what led me to do She Is Called, and there's a more story there if we want to. Yeah, well, and what what has your experience been like then? Because you, I mean, you courageously launched back into the church world, and I say that because um, there was a season in which my wife and I, we just pieced out for a while. Um, mm-hmm. Our... Our Sunday mornings were breakfast, kids, and usually a movie. (laughs) Um, And so going back is hard because in some ways that's the scene of the crime. Mm -hmm. And so there's the risk, there's the doubt, there's the skepticism of everybody. But now you've, like, you've launched in pretty courageously and and pretty fully and pretty deeply. So what has the experience been like coming back, so to speak, to the Christian world, Christian tradition, Christian ministry? Right. I don't think I ever stopped thinking about it all, even mm. when I was out of church. Um, mm. Clearly, the thesis work I was doing, the things I was doing were deeply connected to my background. I was trying to understand it. Because I think um, I didn't have a bad experience of faith growing up overall. I felt deeply the love of God and the, the depth of community, um, and that mattered to me. So when I was out of church, I was very aware of those losses. Mm. Um, and I, I started to just process for me what a faith would look like that I could hold, yeah. which started in a universalist kind of thinking. Um, that was one of the first things that, that felt like it was necessary to think through how God could be loving to all rather than mm-hmm. some elect few. Yeah. Um, and so I started to think that stuff through, and I never stopped, and I kept reading, and I kept thinking about it. Um, and it was really when I had kids that I started going back to church. I have two kids. Okay. Um, and it was partly just thinking, how am I going to talk to them about spiritual things if they don't have sort of a faith heritage to relate it to? Right. Um, so that's what brought me back to church. My first experience back to church in Dallas was not great. It was actually really, it was a Southern Baptist church, um, also very complementarian and wasn't great. So um, when we moved to Minneapolis and I, I, we stumbled into Solomon's porch. I was very, very skeptical. I, yeah. It was super, like, it was hard to want to go. And then I walked in, and my daughter Alice met another little Alice, and she was super lonely. My daughter, because we just moved, and they clicked immediately. And I thought, okay, well, now we're sort of stuck. And then I heard, <laughs> I heard Doug talk for the first time, and I just thought, oh, this is a different thing. Yeah. This is a different thing. He was immediately talking about... Um, faith as, as inclusive and loving and whole. And he was talking about it in such a different way. And it was resonating with so much of the thinking that I had already been doing hmm. um, that I, I just couldn't not come and listen. Um, but it has been painful a little bit to step into working with men who are leading churches, if I'm just super honest. Yeah. Because <laughs> there's a lot of stuff that that stirs up. So. Yeah. Yeah. Um. And so when you came back in, you talked about working with progressive evangelicals Mm -hmm. and hearing from mainline, uh, mainline churches and mainline leaders, specifically women, like, hey, where are all the women? Um, I just came back from the UK and I was involved in a uh, large global gathering of leaders. And the thing that struck me as soon as I walked in the room was, where are all the women? And it was most of the women there were pastor's wife. Um, and so I, that's a great thing to be, but like, yeah. Right. And so I'm sitting there thinking, wait, wait, hang on a second. Where's like, where's the feminine voice? And when the few that were there, thankfully they had them on the platform speaking. And the thing that was fascinating to me was their approach was so needed Mm -hmm. and so radically different. Mm -hmm. The men were often talking about what we're doing, what we're going to do, how we're going to take this hill. Then when we were talking about vulnerability, mm-hmm. we're talking about openness, space, being honest about with, with yourself. And I was like, oh, this is so deeply needed. Right. Um, and so it, it's not just like it, it seems to be almost pervasive throughout this kind of uh, almost a blind spot for some men. But what has that been like for you now entering that space? Because it is risky. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, I think when I first started working with Doug, I was working um, to 
logistically organize the things he was doing in the world. And so I was um, in a position to be quite quieter. And it wasn't about my gender. It was about the role I was playing. But as I started getting involved in that and I started talking with more and more people, they were curious about the things I had to say. And Doug put me in places to, to talk. And so what I started noticing, especially in progressive evangelical worlds, was that um, while we doctrinally had the foundation to live toward egalitarianism, we had particular things we'd grown up with that were psychologically keeping us from being able to have co-leadership structures. Hmm. So women were kept out both because of their own psychology and because of the psychology of the men that they were in leadership relation or not in leadership relationship with. Right. And so I started to recognize that in my own experience. I would walk into these places with these progressive evangelical pastors, lead pastors, and I would enter in conversation with them and I would see them start to enjoy the conversation and then bail <laughs> hmm. because they they were afraid of having of enjoying a conversation with a woman. Yeah. Um, and I, more and more women who were in that circle would say to me, why won't these men talk to me? And I started thinking about it and I was like, you know, we were raised, those of us who grew up in this sort of evangelicalism of the 80s and 90s, we yes. were raised with two highly gendered doctrines. One is complementarianism that I've mm -hmm. already referred to, which says very ex explicitly, men are leaders, women are helpers. Yep. Um, the other is purity culture. Yep. Purity culture is an abstinence-only um, sexual education that most of us went through that says men have desire, sexual desire. Yep. Women usually don't. But women are responsible for male sexual desire and should never tempt a man by being attractive, right. by dressing immorally, whatever it is. Um, so those two things were highly gendered, both fear-based, and mm -hmm. were, were, I was noticing in this world, um, setting us up to be separate from each other. Like right. men and women weren't allowed or able to be in conversation without it being a scary situation. Yes. That makes sense. Oh, total sense. Yeah. And it's the I, I just had a conversation with a woman who's in leadership here at DCC, mm -hmm. who talked about the idea of the femme fatale in literature yes. and in film. Can yes. you talk a bit about that? I can a little bit. It's this idea that the femme fatale is like a siren, like she's the person who is deeply attractive. You can't resist her, and mm -hmm. she's going to kill you. Mm -hmm. She will destroy you. And I think especially in evangelical church leadership, that's a real thing for men in church leadership. Absolutely, it so, is. They are terrified of losing livelihood and respect and all the things that might happen if they had an affair or if there was some sort of sexual misbehavior. And we yep. see that happening right now, right. all the time. So, uh, so it's not an unreal fear. It is a thing that, like the women in the UK were talking about, with vulnerability and conversation and directness. Mm -hmm. I think we can get through to a point of being able to have cross-gendered co-leadership yes. structures that work. Yes. Um, so the more we avoid those things, the more we're afraid of them, we're not going to get there. Um, right. So I think the progressive, particularly evangelical church, has a bit of a challenge because most of us were steeped in complementarianism and purity culture and yeah. are still getting over what that did to us. So Absolutely. Even for, yeah. Sorry. So even for no. me, like a woman, like psychology for me to say... I'm now going to step into a role and do something that like puts me out there as a voice, puts me out there as somebody who could, I don't know, be a stumbling block or be what I was told I might be. Like, yeah. That takes a certain amount of like psychological ignoring the messages that I was told. I would, yeah, and I would say courage. I mean, like, and I've said that word a few times, but that's what I'm seeing. Um, well, well, first the. The femme fatale thing, especially for those who are listening, is not new. Mm -hmm. um, it's in the opening chapters of the Bible. Yes, it is. And I'm so, so glad you're going to go ahead. I, anytime I reflect on Genesis chapter 3, mm -hmm. Eve, serpent, and I always point out, and her husband was with her and conspicuously silent. Mm -hmm. um, and so oftentimes, if you read through, actually even through the text, you're living in a highly patriarchal culture uh, as a biblical writer, and the narrative was really just to let Eve take the blame, mm -hmm. which uh, oh, Kathleen O'Connor says the original sin is denial. Mm -hmm. And so by, e by Adam saying, the woman you put with here, like she made me do it, that statement yeah. is nearly... It is still what many conservative people have today. Mm -hmm. So a guy goes and makes really poor choices, um, either with sex addiction, pornography, affair, and 
Well, the question that some, not all, but some conservative leaders did was like, well, what was happening in the home with the wife? Right. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Right. <laughs> um, it actually doesn't always take two to tango, is what I've learned in my years in ministry, dealing with horrible, horrible, heartbreaking marriages breaking up, splitting up because of a male making poor choices. Right. So I think it's incredibly important that you point that out. Mm-hmm. Um, that Yeah, we're in a male-dominated culture, especially within the church, and yet women are still being blamed mm-hmm. for all the all the downfalls. Yes. And so, yeah. And you, you so you've talked about stepping into that. Um, and one of the things that I've spoken to you about before is this idea of space mm-hmm. um, and what it takes to step towards someone, specifically a male, mm-hmm. um, and the vulnerability demanded that in that. So can you unpack that yeah. for us a little bit? You kind of started moving toward it, but love to yeah. hear more about that. Um, yeah, stuff on Eve, too. We can come back to it. <laughs> yeah, there. Um, but well, no, do the Eve thing. Okay. I'd love to hear more from your perspective on that. So I think so much of what we read in Genesis is actually run through... So much of our cosmology, our theology, even our patriarchy comes out of early modern thinking, Puritan thinking. Mm -hmm. Um, And so when I read Genesis now, I can't help but realize that it's read through the lens of Milton's Paradise Lost. He wrote an entire poem about the loss of paradise of Adam and Eve. And like... um, so much of what we understand about Genesis, I think, is actually through his grid, what he mm-hmm. told us. And that era, that era believed very firmly that there was God, there was man, and then there was woman. Woman wasn't even made in God's image. She was made in man's image. So she yes. didn't have connection with God until she was joined with a man. So much of when we read Genesis, we read it with that patriarchal hierarchical framing that came to us from this. Anyway, so I have this whole thinking there. When I read that whole thing in that poem that Milton wrote, um, he wrote... He wrote it so that God didn't address Eve directly until she fell, until she ate the fruit. The enti- her entire experience in the garden of, was one of mediated access to God. So Adam had direct access to God. He was created. He looked around and saw all the beauty, and he gloried in himself. He had this moment of like ecstasy and revelation and direct connection to God. Eve was created in a bower. She was led to her husband. She was kind of less than thrilled. She wasn't sure what to do about that. <laughs> no, seriously, that's how it went down. And then, and then she started to, she had this sense of something's not right. I'm in paradise and I, I don't, she didn't have revelation. She didn't have direct access to God. Hmm. So when Eve ate the fruit in the poem, it's the first time that God directly addressed her. So my, my thing with Eve is she was bent on connection. She yeah. was bent on divine connection. Yeah. She was bent on her own experience of the divine, and that meant violation for the sake of connection. She would do that thing. Wow. Um, so, like she, so that to me is what Eve insists on. When I think of even the divine feminine, what I think of is Eve insisting on connection. You will address me directly. I will have direct access to you, to inspiration. Um, wow. And so that's where I go with the Eve story. When she yeah. did that, that's what that was about. And I recognize it's now minus through a literary filter as much as a Genesis filter, but I, I think... Well, everyone's reading the Bible through a filter of right. one sort or another, so <laughs> let's right. just... Yeah. I never heard that. So when you, even when you were talking about the women in the UK, that, that insistence on there's something more here, there's yes. something deep, connective. When I think about what femininity, what women are bringing to leadership right now, part of what we're bringing is this deep sense of grounded divine connection. Um, And that sense of, it's taken so long for me to move the voice of God from something outside of me, trying to Mm, tell me where to go, to something inside of me. Yeah, the inner witness. Yeah. Wow. I think especially for women, though, that's hard. Because we've been told that the male, the the voice of authority is a male. Yeah. And that's been going on for Thousands and thousands and thousands. This is not like yeah. it's a it's a fad. No. This is thousands of years since the dawn of human history, really. Yeah. And at so, least in, at least the way we've understood it westernly. Yeah. Right. And so now you're in this place. Yeah. Moving toward people, which requires vulnerability. Yeah. Um, and, and so let's go back to the question I asked earlier. Uh, unpack that. Like, help us understand what what, yeah. what that feels like. What that is. How you understand it. Um, space is a good word for me. I Mm -hmm. think a lot about how I take up space. 
I have tended to, because of the way I was raised, because of the marriage I was in, because of lots of things, I've tended to make myself small in my space. This mm. is very visual in my mind. Yeah. I feel like there's a sort of Carla-sized space in the world. I think about it as fractals, and I'm sort of cowered in the corner of my space is the way yeah. I tended to live. My reason for doing that was to not cause fear in men, to not, um, I don't know, be attractive, to not whatever, yeah. to be as small as I could so as not to cause trouble mm -hmm. is what I was trained to do. And what I've realized in that is that there's deep isolation. So when I move toward my edges, when I take up all my space, I do get to my limits, that's real, and right. that's where I touch the person next to me. So I think about, like, when I move toward men in leadership, because now I've been in positions where I'm leading with men, I'm... I feel very aware of the fact that I was trained to think of myself as purely a sexual being in purity mm -hmm. culture, and I'm learning that taking up my space is not a sexual act. Right. It is a, it is a living, creative act. Mm -hmm. So when I come towards a man, that is not sexual advancement. Right. Which is what I was trained to believe it was. Yep. Um, and so I'm, I'm learning that I can come toward people, men specifically, in lots of different um, energies and attitudes right. and have very healthy... Um, interactions with them. But it has taken me having to say to myself, to talk myself through the fact that I am other than just a sexual being, which is what I was trained to believe of myself in purity culture world. Um, that my only value to men was a sexual value. So if I was going to participate at all, that was the only way to participate. Right. If that makes any sense? Yes. And so understanding myself as a fully fleshed out human mm -hmm. with lots of skill sets has allowed me to come with much more courage into spaces with men and realize I get to participate not because you might be attracted to me or I might have whatever, yeah. but because I have things to say and I get to be as present in a conversation as the next person. Yes. Um, it has taken, I would say, courage on my part, and it's taken a certain amount of just brazen, like, I don't want to, I don't give a F <laughs> right now. Like, I'm just going to say the thing that's here. Yeah. And the more I've done conversation the, and, and these things, I've realized, no, the things in my head are worth saying. Yeah. Um, and that's been tricky to get to. And... So uh, let me make an observation that will lead to a question, I hope, <laughs> is um, I was re just reading about sexual dysfunction in men who think that, like there was this one guy who was like sharing about his skewed view of the world. Mm -hmm. And he talked about walking into a business where there was a woman who smiled at him and said, oh, hello, may I help you? And because she smiled at him, he was like, oh, this is on. <laughs> and so it rightly pointed out the dysfunction is with the male, mm -hmm. not a woman who, as an employee of this company, right. saw someone who walked in, didn't recognize him as welcoming him in. And so I point that out because I do think um, men have been able to, and I'm painting with a broad brushstroke here, so if you're a male and you're listening, I'm not saying all men, right. but men have largely been able to escape the sexual dysfunction, like you talk about being a sexualized being, we've been told, well, you're the sum of your urges and you can't control it. So therefore you, rather than go inward and deal with whatever's messed up in our hearts and sideways and everything else, throw the blame like back to the garden. Yes. It's the woman you put here with me. Yes. And so as you're stepping into, uh, I like the way you put it, as you're Becoming fully Carla. <laughs> um, all my face. Yeah, no, and that's super healthy. What are some steps? I would say, what, first, what are some steps that you took in your own uh, in your own journey to say, I, I will do this, um, and that might just be sheer determination. And then, what are some of the challenges that you've faced, that you felt, that you've experienced in in doing that and in taking those steps? Yeah, um, I think I the. The, term, the first question, say it one more time. What are some of the steps you took that led you to say, I'm, gonna, I'm filling up my Carlos space? Right. I think it was just plain practice. Like um, when I would be invited to speak, just saying yes and letting the words come to me. Yeah. I, I write, when I speak, I write it all out. I can't not. Um, but just trusting that they would come, accepting the invitation, and then knowing that I actually had something to say about it. Yeah. And then practicing saying it. 
Um, and then watching things work where like I start, uh, the first thing I sort of did that was my own leadership role was to run the women in leadership track at our open faith conference a couple of years ago, four mm. years ago. And that went so beautifully. And women came to me later and said, we need this conversation. We need more of that. And that's where the first she is called conference oh, came out. That's so great. And that's where, it, and so now we're coming right up on, on Thursday, the second she is called conference and all of those things. Um, so just to start to feel myself do it and to feel people go, oh, that thing you're saying is the thing I've been, I need to, I wanted to hear. Yeah. Can you say, so just starting in those conversations, practicing saying yes, practicing courage when I didn't feel courage, literally yeah. like living through the fear and mm-hmm. getting comfortable with discomfort Yeah. and just going, I, I know that this is a thing I want deep down and I have all these layers of fear over it Yeah. and I'm going to live through those layers of fear. Right. <laughs> Um, and I, and I do feel less fearful now. I do feel a sense of having lived through them. Um, I, I think in terms of challenges, I think I, I've had to turn very inward and do a deep analysis of who I am, yeah. what I want and who I want to be in the world. Um, that's caused all manner of disruption in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, being able to name with self knowing what I want, mm-hmm. who I believe myself to be, what my preferences are, yeah. what I understand about um, my way of being in the world, my sexuality, all of those things. Naming those clearly has been one of the most painful processes of my life. Yeah. But it has also given me the ability to come into a space with solidity mm-hmm. so that when I come into a space, especially with a man, yeah. I know what I'm bringing. I know what my boundaries are. Right. I know what my energies are. I know how to recognize what's a boundary cross yeah. <laughs> and push back against it. Yep. Um, but all of that has taken a great amount of just being really honest with myself about who I am. Yeah. Um, and again, that's been deeply painful um, in a lot of ways. And also one of the most life-giving things I've ever done to just say, the things that are here inside me are not things I need to be ashamed of or afraid of. They're yeah. things to discover and know and to share yeah. with people then. The only way to take up my space is to actually be able to name what's here. Yep. Um, I think that's the only way to be in healthy relationship. And liberation is rarely painless. Yeah. That that's the, that's the crappy thing. I I always say to people, I'm going to, I'm going to spend my whole life inventing a way to grow and be liberated outside of pain (laughs) because if I can figure that out, I will make billions, (laughs) uh, but I don't think it exists. Um, Uh One of the things that I've heard you say before, and I've heard many women say, um, and I've actually, I've heard you say it several times since we've been sitting here. Do you know where I'm going with this? Uh, I do know what I'm saying. Uh, <laughs> yes. yes. I was, so I was, when I was in the UK, I was just, I was with a, um, a group called the Ozan Foundation, Jane Ozan. Um, and she kept saying, I'm sorry. I'm so-. And finally I was like, okay, Jane, I don't think you need to apologize to me. And I didn't expect the reaction I received from her where like her whole, everything about her seemed like to be more comfortable. And she was like, Thank you for saying that. And so I've heard you you say this. I've heard other women say, like, you'll explain something. You'll even say something profound and deep and, like, compelling. And then it's, does that make sense? Or, oh, I'm sorry. Like, there's a there's a, almost a – so help us understand that a bit. Um, and, and why do you think that sort of thing happens so often? I think particularly in Christian circles, faith circles – the male voice as a central voice is given. So yeah. we, we expect to hear the male voice. We expect to hear the male voice say smart things. We mm-hmm. expect to hear the male voice see, say theological things, um, speak with authority. Um, that's the way that we've been trained. Our ear has been trained to that. Yes. So when a woman, even for myself, I realized in grad school that I would <laughs> look at, I would be writing a paper, I'd be gathering um, articles for my bibliography and I would look to see if it was written by a man or a woman if it was written by a man I was more likely to use it I realized this about halfway through my studies wow. and I was doing that while writing about women and the inequalities that we suffered Yeah. and I just went what's the deal and I realized I'd been trained to value the male voice more highly which yeah. is highly problematic seeing as my voice is female Yeah. but I do genuinely think that when women hear themselves say something even profound in a female voice there's a sense of having overridden male leadership mm-hmm. and so we almost ask for affirmation hmm. because there's a sense of misbehavior sometimes yeah. <laughs> like if I just said the smart thing in the room is that wrong 
Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, no. I just did it. Did you hear it? Uh, yes. <laughs> did. That was unscripted. <laughs> I'm just sitting here thinking about like the bells ringing in the background at the cathedral next door. It sounds kind of great. Um, just yeah, that's great ambiance. Yeah. That's amazing. That's but, funny. But it's, I, and I think, um, I, I also think it's not all bad. I think that I'm going back to even connection. Yeah. That when, when I speak, as a woman, I don't want my voice to just reverberate in a void. Like, I want to know that that landed somewhere. Right. And I might, that might be my personality, but for me, I, I feel like I verbal process. That's how I process. Yeah. So sometimes I'm working things out as I talk. And yep. so when I say that, sometimes I just want mirrored back. Oh, here's what I heard. And that made sense. Yes. Sometimes it's a genuine question. And so as someone on the opposite of that spectrum, one of the things I actually just had this conversation uh, with uh, someone I work alongside today, mm-hmm. he was asking me about communication. And I said to him, one of the things I'm constantly learning is I just assume everyone knows what I'm talking about. And I say it once and everyone totally is on the same page with me. Right. And I'm realizing uh, people who love me very much are coming alongside me going, people have, like, you are losing people left and right with your presumption. So in some ways, it is healthy to stop and say, are you with me? Are you with, are you with me? Does that make sense? Any questions? Mm-hmm. Um, and more I'm learning that, which again is that connectivity. Mm-hmm. It's not me charging forward. It's saying let's move together. Mm-hmm. Like the health of that is, is growing. Um, as you were talking, I was thinking about uh, our teaching pastor here at Denver Community Church as a woman. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that we're constantly talking about is how does she hold a woman's voice mm-hmm. and not try to be a man's voice in a woman's body. Does that, yes. I, I was about to say, does that you make sense? <laughs> oh my goodness. Oh yes. So, <laughs> um, help me like, help us understand, like, is there that temptation for you of like, I got to sound like a man? Mm-hmm. Um, or and, and if so, what are the steps beyond that to say, no, I need to show up right. as a woman and have a woman's voice. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what's some of that process like? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think we're on the same page to say gender is all manner of complex, right? Mm-hmm. So a man's voice and a woman's voice, you could say an Enneagram 8, you, right? An Enneagram 9, no? No. You're not an 8? <laughs> what do you identify as? I never, I'll never say it publicly. I will tell you after the interview. Okay. okay. We're not going to talk <laughs> I, about I, I am right. the Enneagram. <laughs> Actually, no, I did say it publicly. When I was with Chris Hewitt's. Uh, we did a podcast with him, and I. Okay. So I am a. Uh, what's the subset? A social seven, which is often mistaken seven. either for an eight or a three. I get that. That makes a lot of sense. There you go, there world. Right. Michael had all go. Social identity. That's fascinating. Now you can pigeonhole me. Not you, just anyone who wants to. That's a that's a thing. Um, but I, I think that like you can call it gender, you can call it personality, you can you can think about the way we do these things in a lot of different ways. Um, for me, what really matters is that I get down to whatever my voice is at a given time. Yeah. So it it is often going to be considered feminine, mm-hmm. or it will have a more um, whatever um, inclusive or connective or whatever kind of feeling to it. The thing I say is going to be bent that way. Yeah. And you could call that feminine, and that's not wrong. Yeah. Um, you could also call it Enneagram nineness. You could also call it. There are lots of ways you could identify sure. that thing. What I care most about is getting down to what is real inside of Carla. What I think we get really wrapped up in is whatever role we're supposed to fill, whatever expectation is out there for us. We have yeah. a way of performing toward that that then separates us again from whatever our divine inspiration is. That that's true for human beings. Human beings. Yep. Yes. So yeah. so for your teaching pastor, you know, you could talk about sort of the the alpha female. There mm-hmm. is sort of the, the yeah. female and I don't know her at all. So yeah. I'm, not, I'm not saying she is that, but there are women who would be labeled as alpha female. Right. And you could use that as a disparagement. But that might be an Enneagram 8 woman who what she does in a space is show up to say, this is the direction we should go. Yeah. And that's her most authentic way of mm-hmm. being. So she should be that way. Yeah, she you know was told, don't cry on the platform um, because that people will just say, oh, that's what women do. She was literally told mm-hmm. that. And I was like, that is not... You need to just disregard that whole thing. Right. Um, and yeah, I, I like that idea of like, we're not just, the mistake to, uh, n- n- can be, I'm going to identify with just this part about me. And so what I hear you saying is, yeah. nope, I'm 
all sorts of things. So you're speaking as a mother. You're speaking as a Enneagram 9. Is that what you mean? Sorry, um, yeah. What's that? I've, I've been questioned on it, but that's what I identify as. I get questioned all the time, too. Right. The best is when you tell someone, like, yeah, this is what I've discovered about myself. They're like, nope, nope, nope. You're this number. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, wait, this is for self-discovery. Right. Um, yeah, and, and I think that that, again, I want to point out what you're bringing is often what I see growing from this this feminine side of like, wait, 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 we connection go within mm-hmm. where I often see, and even the way I was trained was like, we are going to, we're going to break this thing down. We're going to get it done. We're going to move it, move people. We're going to, um, and so there is so much health, um, in this, I think like I said at the beginning, this intersection that we see now with, uh, the Christian tradition and with the female and the feminine voice. Um, what would you say, to women who are listening by way of encouraging them. Yeah. Um, and and I, there's a broad spectrum of, of uh, people listening, so. Right. Um, so the organization that I help lead is called She Is Called. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the ways we talk about the word calling is, is the internal howl of passion. That's the way we talk about internal, it. I internal, I like that. Internal howl of passion. I was trained, again, to believe that calling was a voice outside me mm-hmm. telling me I should go do that thing I probably didn't want to do. Yeah. <laughs> and if I had a desire, it was probably the thing I was supposed to lay down and sacrifice for the sake of my calling. Mm-hmm. So part of what we're doing with this conversation in She Is Called is turning that on its head and saying, no, calling is the internal howl of passion, the desire yeah. that lives inside you. And the only way to discover that is a deep self-knowing, mm-hmm. um, in my opinion, is going toward the thing that is calling internally rather than away from it. Um, the other thing with the way we were, the way I was raised was with the doctrine of original sin um, or total depravity, which says your internal voice is the very thing you're supposed to be working against. Yeah. And that is such a way of separating us from ourselves so that we don't have an, an understanding and that, to me, is what leads to unhealthy relationship and all manner of frustration because you don't know yourself well enough to know how to relate well with the person next to you. Yeah. Um, so for women out there, I think we especially have been told we, we probably don't have desires, really, except to please whatever man we're nearby. Yeah. We probably don't have ambition, or if, at least we do have ambition, we're supposed to quiet it, or those types of things. So what I would say to women or whoever is listening is, go toward those ambitions, go mm-hmm. toward that deep inner desire and see where it takes you. Like follow your trail of curiosity. Yeah. And and it will be scary and that's okay. Yeah. You can live with fear. Like you can, fear is to me, I've, I've recognized that fear tends to be attached to something that's not, like we attach fear to an objective. We think that if we're afraid of something that makes the thing we fear an objective reality. Do you right. know what I'm saying? Yep. And fear isn't that at all. Like. There isn't an objective reality. As a nine, sorry, I did it again. I'm going to illustrate this and keep talking. But um, I'm afraid of being uninteresting. That's the thing a nine is afraid of, Mm. being sort of overlooked, uninteresting. Um, So I... I attach reality to that fear. I think because I'm afraid of being uninteresting, that means I probably am uninteresting. I make an objective. It is an objective. It's not real. I fear it. That's not a real thing. Do you know what I'm saying? So the fear becomes really ephemeral when you start to go, oh, that's not actually attached to anything. There isn't somebody hiding in the alley on a dark night. I just think there is. So I feel fear. And that's real that I feel fear. The thing I'm afraid of is not real. Yeah, yeah. It's not actually there. Yeah. So when you feel fear, that's okay. You can feel fear. Also know the thing you're afraid of probably isn't actually there. Right, right. (laughs) And that idea of courage, which we've touched on a couple times, and you said it earlier, you didn't say exactly this way, but it's not the absence of fear. It's going like, I can recognize there's fear there, and I'm still going to push into this. Yeah, I'm going to see what happens when I push toward it. And the fear tends to, when you push toward it, to dissolve. Yeah. It just, it doesn't have anywhere to stand when you go toward it. Like it, yeah. And Richard Rohr says something like, all that's needed for fear to dissolve is for light to be shown in that darkness. I was having a conversation recently with one of my kids about something they were scared of. And they're like gushing about it. And I finally, when they finished, I said, what do you, what do you need from me? Do you need like guidance? You need an answer? You need me to listen? And they said, I just feel better talking to you about it. Yeah. And I was like, oh, like, <laughs> yes. Yeah. But there is that sense of like just naming it mm-hmm. was 
so important to do that with someone who's trusted. Yeah. Um, what would you say to the men who are listening? And I ask that because I've had many conversations with men, um, some of whom are that just feel like shame and guilt of like, oh my gosh, I participated in this thing. Um, men who, especially around the Me Too movement, um, me included in this, completely ignorant of like, wait, what? I, huh? And I started asking um, a lot of my sisters about who, like, have you experienced this? And I was, I came to the point of tears of realizing, oh my goodness, almost every woman I spoke to have experienced this. So you have like that guilt, you have the shame, you have the how, how did I miss this? Um, you have some who are like, I want to do everything I can. And what does this look like? So again, a broad spectrum of people who are listening, but for, for men who are listening, what would you say of like, here, here's some things you can do to, uh, in this continued journey, yeah. uh, moving forward. Yeah. I, I think I'm, I think first of all, every man should read, um, bell hooks, the will to change. Her Bell book, Hooks, Bell The Hooks, Will to Change. Bell Hooks is her name. Okay. The book is called The Will to Change. Um, it's about patriarchy and how patriarchy impacts men. And mm. how really in patriarchy, men are no less separated or are as separated from their internal selves as women are. Yeah. So patriarchy is not serving any of us. Mm. Um, so I feel deep compassion for men who have been set up to hold a role that is not their internal voice. Yeah. Um, so, so there's that, I would say, realize how patriarchy is not serving you, how it's separating you from your own self and your own self knowing by asking you to play a particular role. Yeah. Um, and un- dissolve that and unpack that, go into that and say, what's happening there for me? I'm sort of privileged by this, but I'm yeah. also suffering under it. What does that mean? Yeah. Um, so go into that. The other thing is like, I've realized as I've stepped into leadership roles, wherein I'm leading men that it takes men longer often to believe a female voice um, mm. than it does for them to believe a male voice. I feel I feel like there have been times I've been in a meeting or something and I've said a thing and I feel like had had Doug or another leader who has been in this sphere said that thing in a male voice, people would have been all in right away. Yeah. When I said it in my female voice, even as convincingly as I I can, I feel like there have been moments that it's just taken men longer to believe me. Yeah. So I feel often like I just want to say to men, believe the women around you. They're they're not saying something to you out of competition. Often. Yeah. They're they're saying it out of a a gen. This is again I'm generalizing, but I think um, we perceive sometimes competition where there isn't competition. And so yeah. when a woman woman is speaking, I think that sort of hierarchical tendency to hop in with a competitive um, response is, is interesting. I've noticed it. But I would say lean toward the women who are speaking and believe them. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, goodness. I, I feel such deep compassion right now for men who are trying to understand what this all of this has done for their own for their own sexuality, their own, I, I feel deep compassion. I don't know how to think of, I, I too, am, I'm in the me, I'm me too. You know yeah. what I mean? So like, it's not, this is not a thing I'm familiar with, but I think men are really struggling to figure out how do I relate to women well? Yeah. And I would go back to the self-knowing thing. I think men sorting out their own stuff and not projecting it onto the women around them, not yeah. saying women can't participate now because they, because women have shined a light on this issue. My deep fear is that what men are going to say is, oh, now you can't participate because I'm scared of you again. Right. You know what I mean? Right. Because you might cause me pain or struggle. Yeah. Um, so there's that same denial that you talked about in the garden. This thing happened, and now I'm going to blame it on you and say yes. you can't participate. Yes. Yeah. So so don't do that. Don't do that. Yeah. Don't don't project. You you'll have stuff you know <laughs> to to work through and to figure out like what is happening here within us that makes me want to when this Me Too move, movement happens project it back onto the woman and not believe and blame. Yeah. Um, just ask yourself the questions. Also, like man, I wish we could move away from a punishment structure. Yes. That's, I'm just going to say that in response to the Me Too thing. Yeah. I, 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 I don't, I don't like the punishment structure we live under. Yep. So, it's it's painful for me personally to watch the Me Too movement and to want so much for women to be able to speak out, and also for me to feel like I wouldn't want to name 
the people in my life because I actually don't want them to be punished. I want them to be restored and whole. But that's not what happens in our society. Wow. That, yeah, we could probably do a whole other podcast about that. That's a lot. um, Yeah, that that reflects a good heart, like a forgiving, compassionate, Jesus-type heart. That's just, yeah. I'll take it. (laughs) (laughs) Really? No, I, yeah. Um, So you are doing, you're here in Denver and you're leading She Is Called. Can you tell us a little bit about She Is Called? You you touched on it briefly, but. Yeah. um, She Is Called is an organization. We hold space for um, conversation around female ambition. We just try to start conversations about female desire, female women's work, women's ambition, women's women's desire. So we do that through a podcast. We have a blog. Um, SheIsCalled.com is the website. And this will be our second annual She Is Called conference. Nice. Um, they're small, we, they're boutique type conferences, 50 people coming together to have conversations around oh, certain topics that affect our um, ambition and work as women. So yeah. the three conversations we're having this year are sex and power, mm-hmm. intersectionality and equity, and prevention and repair. So as you're moving toward your ambitions and your work, these are yeah. things you're going to run into. How does sex and power impact me? How does equity and yeah. intersectionality impact me? And how do I move through fear to repair and not just try to prevent all the time? So yeah. these are the conversations we're having this year. We're bringing women together from all over the country to help facilitate those conversations. Um, and I'm, I'm super excited. So that this year, um, we'll do the conversations. We'll have integration and contemplation time. Where we'll do yoga and music and oh, art. Nice. And then we're going to hang out in Denver. So each afternoon, we'll have a Denver local experience. We'll go to Red Rocks. We'll go to Rhino um, and just do some outing stuff together. Oh, that's so great. Yeah, and then come back together in the evenings for drinks and a keynote um, both nights. And yeah, I'm thrilled. So that's Thursday oh, through cool. Saturday this week going to be a blast but our, our whole goal is to make space for women to talk about their desires and their yeah that's what we want to do so that's great and then you have so you mentioned she is called podcast mm-hmm. how many other podcasts are you so, doing holy writ is my other she is called a co-host with kate martin who okay is um also part of she is called she has another podcast kate Colby. Yep. so so she's fantastic so we co-host the she is called podcast um, Holy Writ is my personal podcast, and it's sort of the the Venn diagram crossover of my two like things I can't stop doing, which are yeah. reading and literature and faith work. So I talk to faith people about what they're reading or writing. Uh, it's basically like a book club slash profile awesome. kind of show. And I, I do that one just out of my like deep desire to hear a woman's voice do things that are intelligent in the world. Um, yeah. And so I love these conversations that I have with faith people. They're they're that's my favorite project. I yeah. just love it. So. That's monthly. Um, and then I am one of the panelists on the Christian Feminist Podcast, which is, that's not a thing I manage. I show up, I do the panel. There are three of us always on a panel. Um, and that's an interesting, that's an interesting cross-section of people. Like I would say I, I lean left in that group. So yeah. it's an interesting conversation, but. Great. And where can people, uh, our listeners, where they can they find you online? Sure. So sheiscalled.com mm-hmm. is where all that would live. Holywritpodcast.com is the other place. Both of those have, have Facebook pages. Perfect. And Instagram. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. And then I'm Carla. You work on Facebook. I don't have my own website. (laughs) Right on. Yeah. Well, thank you in the midst of your busy schedule in the next few days here in Denver for making time to be on the Changing Faith podcast, yet another podcast that your name will now be on. It's so fun for me. Podcasting is my favorite. Thank you. I do enjoy it. So, well, thank you for being with us. And for those of you who are listening, know that we will put Carla's information on the episode description um, in the in the podcast. So if you're listening and you want to learn more about the Holy Writ podcast, about She Is Called, um, and all that Carla is doing and the good work she's doing in the world, you can connect by going back to the episode description and finding all of the information there. As always, thank you so much for joining with us today. And until next time, much love and peace be with you.